You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Jewish Matters podcast. Tonight, in our extraordinary Jewish personalities, we're going to be speaking about Natan Sharansky, the prisoner of Zion. And Sharansky is the only living personality that we have planned to speak about. He's personally one of my heroes, and I believe he's one of the heroes of our generation amongst the Jewish people. And his story is truly an extraordinary one. And it's really emblematic of the whole Soviet Jewry Refusenik movement, which was an extraordinary chapter in Jewish history, not so long ago, but not so well known. And one could make the argument that Natan Sharansky's bravery and heroism in fighting the Soviet system and spending nine years in prison was one of the major factors that helped bring down the USSR and the Iron Curtain and communism. So, extraordinary, we're going to see what one man can accomplish, and we must also emphasize the efforts of his wife, Avital, who played a crucial role in his battle against the Soviet Union. Now, the history of Soviet Jewry goes back, goes back a long time, but starting with the Russian Revolution, 1917, uh, religion became suppressed. Religion in the face of communism uh, became dangerous to practice, and there were little glimmers of hope when Golda Meir became the first Israeli ambassador to the Soviet Union in 1948 on Rosh Hashanah when she went to synagogue. There were tens of thousands of Jews who showed up in front of the synagogue to celebrate the new state and to celebrate her. Before 1967, some Jews were being allowed to emigrate to Israel, although the Six-Day War uh, brought a cutoff of that and it also brought about a renewed Jewish pride. And this is where Natan Sharansky comes in, and he talks about how the first stirrings of his Jewish identity, which were really nil, as were many uh, Jews in the Soviet Union, had really no Jewish ident identification other than being called a Jid and the anti-Semitism, which always made them aware of who they were, but no... Uh, expressed Jewish life. In 1970, on the aftermath of the 67 War, he starts to learn Hebrew, and he reaches out to what he discovers to be a community of people who would be called refuseniks. Uh, they were, had been uh, revived in their Jewish identity and their Jewish longing. Um, many of them were yearning to go to Israel. They would gather in groups in people's apartments secretly to study Hebrew. And there were a lot of humorous stories about the KGB agents that would follow them around. Sometimes they would spend the night at that person's apartment because there were so many agents in front and uh, they wanted to, didn't want to give them the satisfaction of seeing them leaving. The one humorous incident Sharansky describes 
the agents drove into an inner courtyard in a building. The next set of agents came for the next person they drove in. They stayed there all night, forcing the agents to stay there all night as well. It was snowing, and in the morning they couldn't get their cars out, and they were causing a ruckus. The neighbors were all looking what is happening, and the agents, needless to say, were very embarrassed. 1970 was also a watershed because it was one of the beginning of the notorious trials, the Leningrad trial, where two, Refusnik, Kutsunov, and Dinshitsky, uh, hijacked a plane and tried to fly to Sweden. They were caught, they were sentenced to death, and this got a lot of publicity internationally. Their sentence was commuted to 15 years in prison. And subsequently, whereas they might have actually done something that uh, actually would be against the law, we're going to see that that began a series of, of uh, trials, series of imprisonments of Jews simply for the fact that they wanted to immigrate to their homeland or they wanted to study Hebrew. And what we're going to see is so interesting about this is the Soviets did have their own internal logic. They had certain laws on the books uh, that a person was allowed to practice religion. And internally, of course, they would change the laws, they would make up lies, they would accuse people of things they never did. But externally, they did feel like they needed to save face in the international arena. And this is where uh, the story is going to unfold, and this is where the drama and where the changes will start to happen. So in 1972, Richard Nixon visited Russia. It was really uh, the beginning of the first stirrings of some connection after the Cold War. After World War II, uh, the Russians took over half of Europe, the Allies half, and it was clear that there was going to be a face-off between Russia and America. America acquired the first nuclear bomb. Russia came back soon, and what was called the Cold War, a standoff of large armies positioned in Europe uh, between the Allies and the Soviets, and the buildup of nuclear stockpiles, uh, the Bay of Pigs, and sh when the Soviet Union tried to ship nuclear weapons and missiles to Cuba. Uh, Kennedy faced him down, almost bringing about a nuclear war. But in, by 72, they were already starting to create contacts between Russia and America. During the visit, all of the refuseniks were put in prison so they wouldn't go out and demonstrate. And also in that year, there was a Soviet-American trade agreement Russia needed American wheat. Paradoxically enough, the great workers' paradise could not produce enough food for its inhabitants, and that would be a key factor that we'll talk about. The other development was that between 1973 and 76, there would be the Helsinki Accords, which were all of the countries getting together and agreeing on a basic set of human rights. And... The Russians from this deal were going to get recognized borders of what they had taken over after World War II. And the West saw themselves getting out of it um, human rights agreements, at least on the books were there with Russia and the communist countries. Remember, it was not just Russia, all of Eastern Europe, 
Poland, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, it was all part of the communist bloc. So let's go back to the refuseniks and to Natan Sharansky and his little gang. So Jews would apply to emigrate to Israel. They had to be sponsored by one of their family members. And um, when they would apply, they would lose their jobs often, sometimes their apartments. And then the Soviets would turn around and accuse them of being parasites on the state, which was a crime of not working. Um, in 1973, Sharansky applies for a visa. He was doing graduate work in applied computers, applying computers to chess game. He grew up as a chess whiz, a genius as a child and a teenager, and that will be important as well, and we'll see how that comes back. Uh, but he was told, at first he was told there was no reason, he just couldn't go, uh, even though other people from his school were allowed to emigrate. Eventually it came out, they said he had state secrets from his programming computers to play chess. So, being stuck, he started to demonstrate on behalf of himself and also on behalf of others. And that year, Isaac Skolnik, a young Jew who had applied to emigrate, was accused of being a spy for the British and was sentenced to seven years in prison. And things started to escalate. Uh, Sharansky, with the other young uh, and some of them older group in this refusenik group. By the way, there were some non-Jews. Sakharov, scientist, also was part of this, uh, his own group. And uh, they would go into the streets. They would protest. They even went into the center of the Soviet uh, bureaucracy, the central building, and had a sit-in. And this is where things started to escalate. Now, at the same time as they were studying Hebrew, uh, they were also studying Jewish history, and some of them had started studying Torah. And there would be groups of Jew individuals, sometimes groups, sometimes individuals, who would visit from America, from the Western countries, and would come with Judaica books, with Judaica articles, to fill in, uh, and who would come and teach some of these refuseniks, who would smuggle in materials for them, and this would later be thrown at Sharansky of his contacts with foreigners when he would eventually be accused of being a foreign spy for the CIA. There were also American senators visiting that they would, that they would uh, meet up with, all try being done on the down low, um, and the constant harassment, as we said. Now, Sharansky could have laid low. He could have simply made his reapplication or uh, um, could have appealed his refusal for a visa, but he would not be passive. He insisted on going out and for demonstrating for others even more than himself, and that's what really got him into trouble. Now, a central part of our story was Avital Sharansky, uh, Natalia Steglitz, as she was known before. Uh, her brother had applied for Aliyah, and he was put in prison, which turned out only to be a few days, but she went and sought out some of the refuseniks, and she met Sharansky. 
She asked him questions about her brother, how to get him out, how to get him to Israel. And he, of course, was more as interested in her as her brother. And he invited her to come to a Hebrew class, which she did. She said she was on the intermediate level, so she could be in the class with him. And uh, it was love between them from the very beginning. And the beauty, the intensity of their relationship uh, throughout the years was noted by many people. And we'll hear the dramatic story. Um, Avital's brother made it to Israel eventually, and she did not want to go without Natan. When he was refused a second time, he insisted that she apply for Aliyah. They requested to get married, hoping that if she was approved through her brother, that her husband could also be approved. So first of all, the marriage request was refused, and her request was delayed. Two, three months, they weren't answering. She went to the, they went to the synagogue to try and get married by the rabbi, and it was blocked. He could not marry them. He said that he would get in trouble. By then, people knew who Sharansky was. And during Richard Nixon's visit in 72, Sharansky was put in prison. All of a sudden, Natalia, or Avital, got the answer that she had her visa, and then she was told she had to go within 10 days, and if she did not respond and go, that she might never be given that chance again. She would never be given that chance again. And it's very possible that, of course, the Russians orchestrated all of this, throwing him in prison, making her go without it. And she was expecting him to get out any day. She had 10 days, and she started to plan the wedding. They found a learned Jew who would marry them. She sewed her dress, and day by day was passing. Nixon had left, and Sharansky still didn't appear. So on July 4th, 1974, the day before her visa expired, the Soviets came into her cell and said, and said to him, you can go. And here we're going to see a fundamental principle that Natan lived by, is that he, for him, freedom didn't mean running, just running off to Israel. It meant freeing himself from the Soviet system and defeating them. And so he told the guard, I haven't finished my book. When I finished my book, I will leave. Showing them that he's leaving not on their terms, but on his terms. He gets home two hours later than he was supposed to leave, and he finds out he's getting married that day. So he quickly hurries home, washes up. They have a beautiful wedding that lasts into the night. And the next day, Avital leaves for Israel. She would not see her beloved Natan for nine years. Nine years after their one day of marriage. And in the next few years, activists would bring pictures shuttled between Israel to America, then to Russia, hidden in their baggage and their books. Of course, back then there was no email or even fax. And during this time, Natan is relentless. Some of the leaders of the Refusenik movement are let out to go to Israel 
and some people thought the Russians wanted to get rid of them so they wouldn't cause so much trouble. Natan hoped he would, but he took over their positions, first as a translator, and he was a quiet young man, very unassuming, small of stature, um, not a particularly charismatic speaker. But people were drawn to him. He was a leader. And when one demonstration, when the line of Soviet soldiers were facing maybe 10, 20, 30 refuseniks, and they couldn't get through to go demonstrate, he said, what is stopping us? And his carriage of 5-3, he marched straight ahead, and they followed. And so he became a leader. Despite the Helsinki agreements, uh, things started to get worse. Half the number, by at the height in the early 70s, up to 20 to 30,000 Russian Jews were being let out. There were many tens of thousands more who had applied, and according to Russian law, they were allowed to go, but they were simply refused. And it started to get worse and worse. By the mid-70s, they had a list of 500 refuseniks, some of them sent to Siberia, living in minus 20, 30 degree weather, no running water, wood for heating, and in the cities, the harassment continues. Apartments are searched, materials are confiscated. In 1976, shockingly, at one of the protests in front of one of the Soviet bureaucracy buildings, six of the refuseniks were invited in to come speak to them. Natan was one of them. They were told 98.4% of those who wanted to let go, we have let go. The rest have secret information. When they asked the Soviet, what is that secret information? The answer was, oh, we can't tell you that's the secret. And you will have these uh, Kafka-esque uh, crazy situations happening uh, with the bureaucrats, with the double talk, with the lies, with the subterfuge. Um, and surveillance got worse. Uh, Natan didn't even want to visit his elderly parents for fear of them being harassed. And now, October 1976 on Simchat Torah was a famous demonstration at the Soviet center of the Soviet uh, party, where they went in the first day and when the building closed up, they were told they would have to leave. The next day, they came with yellow stars sewn to their jackets, sat down and wouldn't leave. Even when the building closed, they were beaten up, they were roughed up. They were, and when they would take them into the police uh, uh, precincts, they would throw them in the, uh, in the cells that were the uh, detox cells the sobering up cells, which were common in Russia. Needless to say, they weren't the most pleasant place to be. Uh, by the third day, the Soviets did not know what to do. And in March of 1977, finally, Natan Sharansky is arrested. His trial is set on charges that he was a CIA spy and he tells them he had no links to the CIA and all he wanted to do was to leave the Soviet Union to go to his homeland. He will wind up spending nine years in prison, 
400 days of that time in solitary confinement in a punishment cell. He was in the dreaded Lefortovo prison in Moscow, and then in Christopol, uh, in the outer, outer Tartar region, and then in the Gulag in Perm III uh, in Siberia. And here we, comes the story of the incredible strength, the incredible heroism of Natan Sharansky in jail. And he wrote an incredible work called Fear No Evil about his experiences. And he said what kept him sane were two things. One was that because he had been a chess master, he had this ability to play multiple chess games at once and even in his mind. He called it a gimmick. Uh, he'd hoped he would become the grand chess master, which he saw he was not going to become. Then he became a scientist. He'd hoped he'd become the grand physicist, which he did not become. And then he says, instead I became the refusenik. And that he was. Um, and this is how he said he survived and stayed sane. Sometime in these isolation cells, no furniture. And decades later when he would visit, he looked in the cell and he said, Oh, they have a wooden bench. We didn't have that luxury. Lying on stone floors in flimsy clothes in the Russian winter. Uh, no heat. Wet uh, he went from 165 to 77 pounds in prison. And we'll see his health was severely compromised. Uh, other prominent uh, refuseniks were being sentenced at the time. Yuri Arlov to seven years in prison, uh, five years exile, Ira Nudel, four years exile, and she was 47 years old. And Sharansky, um, at his trial, he refused to have a lawyer, a state-appointed lawyer. He represented himself, which he later found out was a good thing because they could not give him the death penalty without a lawyer. But he was given three years in prison and another nine years in the gulag. So the other thing he said that kept him sane, the other two things, was his beloved Avital. When he was first in prison, at times she was able to get through to him. Um, sorry, before he was in prison. She was able to get through on the phone. The first nine months, there was no communication. And they tried to break him. They tried to say, your colleagues are here and they're denouncing you. They tried to promise freedom if he would denounce them. And the, it was more psychological, but there was also physical torture, but it was more psychological torture that they exercised upon him. And uh, finally, after 18, 16 months, the trial began. He was convicted. And uh, before going into prison, Avital had given him a book of Psalms. And he, said, he would later say that one of the things that kept his sanity was, of course, his, also his faith. And he had learned 2,000 Hebrew words. And uh, a few months ago, we had 
Natan speak uh, for one of our pre-Shavuot, Leil Tikkun learning. And he described how, with those words, he was able to backwards figure out, learn, teach himself the Hebrew language from the book of Psalms, from the 2,000-year words he knew and the context. Okay, obviously you're talking about a, a brilliant mind here. Um, and the words for his, the title of his book, Fear No Evil, of course, come from Psalm 23. And he said, that was the first Psalm. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. King David is speaking to the Almighty. These words resonated so strongly for Natan Sharansky. And sure enough, he did fear no evil. Um, when they took away his book of Psalms, he started to go on hunger strikes. And this is when he was in the prison in the Tartar region. His mother was allowed to visit him once, but um, that visit, which was supposed to be three days, at great hardship to her in her mid-70s. She had to travel for hours and hours, uh, planes, buses, one case walking five hours next to a frozen river. And instead, of, they let her stay for 24 hours instead of the appointed three days. Um, when he was transferred to the camp in the Perm, she also, that's when she visited him. And the perm was as bad as a prison. He worked in the metal shop under horrible conditions. And uh, when he collapsed, because his health was getting bad, uh, they eventually, when he came out of the hospital 30 years later, they were going to give him the job cleaning the toilets. And he refused because he said he didn't want to take it away from the old man who had that job because the job came with extra rations. So because he refused to, uh, to work, he was put in solitary confinement for 15 days. When he came out, it was Hanukkah. So he had managed to gather a little bit of wax and took a thread from his, uh, from his prison garments and he lit the Hanukkah candle. When the guard saw him and told him to put it out, he said, I cannot, it's my religious obligation and Soviet law allows me. He was thrown into 15 more days of solitary confinement and six months in the inner prison he was sentenced to. He demanded his book of Psalms at this point and they refused and he started to go on hunger strikes. He was given more time because of the hunger strike. He would wind up spending, in the next few months, 185 days in solitary confinement. 75 of those were consecutive. Two and a half months in solitary confinement. Food was only given every other day in these punishment cells, and he would collapse and faint. Um, and he was tried then and sentenced to another three years in prison, and then they sent him back to the jail. And so this was his experience in jail. And 
what started to happen is he started to garner international support. Avital, from the minute he was thrown in prison in 1977 for the five years, was traveling around to foreign capitals, to politicians. She met with President Jimmy Carter uh, and she would wind up meeting with most of the U.S. presidents. This is how much uh, exposure his case was getting. And by the early 80s, it was cause célèbre. The, and I remember in the mid-80s, going out in the streets of New York, led by Rabbi Avi Weiss and Rabbi Mer Kahana, and carrying signs. My sign was uh, one of Yosef uh, Udell, one of the other refuseniks. Since my middle name is Yosef, I particularly identified with him. I have to admit that I was not with the subgroup who sat down in the middle of the avenue and got arrested, uh, but we were out there demonstrating. And as I said before, the Soviets did care about their foreign image, but at the same time were cracking down. By 1982, only 2,600 Jews were let out from a height of 30,000 per year. It was down to 2,600 per year. And at that point, in 1983, uh, the Americans had put pressure. Uh, in 1980, uh, there was an amend sorry, 77, there was an amendment to the Soviet trade agreement uh, pushed in by Scoop Jackson, linking the Russian human rights record to the American trade that would go to the Soviet. And they canceled the trade agreement. And they knew that they had to keep the repression or their entire system would start to fall apart. But paradoxically, it was their increasing the oppression that brought more foreign pressure. That brought more uh, recognition of what the Soviets were doing. And it started to stir unrest amongst the Soviet population because eventually all the coverage in the Western media all of the American presidents speaking out vociferously started to filter down to the general Soviet public. Uh, public. And um, in 1973, there were some rumors that they might review his sentence based on good behavior and an end to the noisy propaganda campaigns. Now here, there's another discussion we need to have because there were two schools of thought. And there were rabbis in the United States, particularly uh, the Lubavitch Rebbe, Rabbi Arthur Schneier, Rabbi Pinchas Taitz, who did a lot for Soviet Jewry, but their strategy was to do everything quietly because they thought antagonizing the Soviet would just make them firmer in their, uh, in not, in, in their, uh, in their pushing back firmer in their closing the gates, firmer in their repression of Zionism and of Judaism. On the other hand, as we know, the student, student struggle for Soviet Jewry, which was started in the early 60s, by then had become a worldwide movement. And particularly mentioned to um, Glenn Richter, who was really the driving force. And you talk about, you know, can one or two people change the world? 
between Glenn Richter and Natan Sharansky, and of course all of the other refuseniks and all the, all the others spent time in prison and who worked tirelessly on their behalf and the American politicians who stuck their necks out for them and when they didn't have to. Although it did fit into the American political agenda, we do have to say that. But, um, uh, but the, the, the movement what took the different philosophy, which was to be very public, to bring a lot of bad press upon the Soviet Union, to bring foreign pressure upon the Soviet Union. And um, while it did not get them to let the refuseniks out, I believe it did cause a world shift. Um, and by 1975, uh, 83, 84, 85, the rumors were swirling that Sharansky might be released. But at one point in 83, they demanded that if he signed a letter saying that he was in bad health and asked for clemency due to bad health, they would let him out. His mother wrote a letter begging him to do so. And in a very cruel turn of events, when she visited him in prison, traveling very far, the Soviets wouldn't let her see him because he was on a hunger strike. He wouldn't go off the strike until his mother read his letter. They passed a letter from him to his mother, but blacked out five lines. She said, I didn't get, I won't, I won't say that I was able to read his letter because it's not true. She finally acquiesced and wrote that she had seen his words. He got it. He was ready to go over, over, off his hunger strike. And, uh, but they did not tell his mother that he'd gone off the strike and she left without seeing him. But the point of all this is that when she asked him to sign a letter asking for clemency for his bad health, uh, she was warned and by other refuseniks that signing such a letter would be tantamount to admitting that he was guilty because he's asking for clemency. And be very careful because that could uh, be thrown back against him. But in any case, the expected happened and Sharansky would not sign it in any case because he refused to even ask them for that. So, in 1985, finally, detente begins. And Gorbachev and Reagan have a meeting in Geneva. Everyone is hopeful. At the meeting, Avital slipped a letter to uh, Gorbachev's wife. And she said this, Think about me when your husband comes home or when you are playing with your children. Think about how I cannot be with my husband, how I have no children because of how unjustly my husband has been imprisoned. And a decade later, Sharansky would go to Russia, would meet the Gorbachevs. He was by then a Israeli minister. And of course, Gorbachev said, oh, you know, uh, we only started to hear about you when we met with Reagan and, you know, and it was only a year later till you got out. Of course, they both knew 
that for years before Gorbachev had been part of the Soviet repressive system and of course he knew about Sharansky and what they were doing to him. And his wife never mentioned the letter, the note that had been slipped to her by Avital. But in February 11th, 1986, uh, well, a few weeks before, all of a sudden, Sharansky was moved to Moscow to a prison. His family, his mother was not informed and he was told to get dressed on February 11th, 1986. They gave him civilian clothes and he was taken out of the prison. In the courtyard, now he didn't know what was happening, but he knew he was given civilian clothes. In the courtyard, he said, where's my book? Where's my Tehillim? And they said, oh, we don't know. You don't need that. He laid down in the, in the snow in the courtyard and demanded his book and said he wouldn't move until he got it. This was his strength. And the hunger strikes, because the Soviets were terrified if he would die, it, the Americans were saying it would have had major repercussions. And so he was able to use his own life and his own health as a uh, weapon against the Russians. He did not just become a refusenik. He did not just become a prisoner of conscience. He took the offensive against them, so to speak, by using whatever leverage he could. And uh, this is the power of his spirit. This was his greatness. He never gave up. He never stopped fighting them. And he said, though, that really my freedom began when I became a refusenik. When I started to live my Jewish life because I was no longer beholden to the Soviet system, to the Soviet psychology, to their mind control, I'd already been freed. And sure enough, he showed how the nine years in prison, 400 days in solitary confinement, he had freed himself already. And these, this is the way he looks at it. Right? February 11th, he has flown from Moscow. Uh, the only thing he knew is that he was going west. He's brought to East Berlin, uh, which was communist and Russian. And West Berlin was an island of democracy, part of uh, West Germany, even though it was separated by three hours. And I visited Berlin at the time. And it was surrounded by East Berlin, by communism and by East Germany. He was brought there and then he didn't know what was happening. He did see the initials uh, of the German Republic and uh, Communist Republic. He knew where he was. He was brought further west to a bridge and told to walk. And then he realized what was happening. And what was happening was he was traded for Soviet spies. And the Americans insisted that he be allowed to walk first and not at the same time as then because they didn't want it to look like they're admitting that he was ever a spy. And he was told, walk straight. And of course, what did he do? He ran in a zigzag to the American side.
and uh, he was brought by that night he was already in Israel he, he had a hero's welcome at the Western Wall when he saw his beloved Avital he said to her I apologize sorry I'm a little late he was met by the president uh, Shimon Perez and finally was truly free in spirit and in body. But Sharansky did not rest. And here we see that he started the second half of his life and you see what a great leader he is. He spent 10 years uh, developing uh, a nonprofit to work, help the Zionist Forum to help the tens of thousands of Russians who were emigrating. And of course, by 1989, when the Iron Curtain fell and Gorbachev threw in the towel and communism fell apart, the Berlin Wall was torn down. You then had, in the next number of years, 700,000 Russian Jews who would arrive in Israel. Unbelievable Aliyah. And so for 10 years, he worked on helping them, getting funds to help them settle, be absorbed, retrain in jobs. And in 1995, uh, 10 years later, he decided he needed to take it to the real source of power and into politics. And he started the Israel Ba'aliyah movement to be a party representing the Russian Jews because he felt frustrated that the Israeli government wasn't doing enough for the new arrivees. They garnered seven seats in the Knesset, which was a large amount for a new uh, party. And over the next 10 years, he would become minister of numerous uh, different portfolios. He started out with the industry and trade. And uh, there are those who felt uh, like he started to become a politician, causes that they hoped he would champion. He didn't necessarily. And uh, the question was, you know, could he keep his integrity even in politics? Because he, of anyone, was a man of principle and integrity. And there's different opinions about this, depending on which side of whether you agreed with him or not. He had falling outs with some of his close friends over political issues, but he was undaunted. And Avital, on her part, had become very religious. Where Natan lies in that scale, he never really uh, made totally known. Uh, what he did is he, instead of wearing whatever color, size, or brand of yarmulke designating religious affiliation, he wore his little Israeli army hat, which he'd gotten years ago, years before, from someone visiting uh, Russia. And... Uh, after 10 years in, po in politics, he resigned when Sharon chose to give back Gaza to the Palestinians. And out of principle, he said, I will not sit in a government that does this. He left politics. The next 10 years, he would work for the Jewish agency, the Sachnut, from 2005 to 2015. Eventually, he would receive the Israel Prize, the Genesis Prize, and um, and here we have the story of a truly great hero of our times. And um, 
What he said later was that to think that since that time, one million people have left this big punishment cell, the Soviet Union, where the KGB had been locking people in. And then he said, the regime doesn't even exist anymore. I realized then how much we had all survived and how in the end, this cell was the scene of my greatest victory. This is what he said upon returning to Russia two decades later. A million people have left. The regime doesn't exist. They had been truly defeated by this great prisoner of Zion. And may we uh, continue his work of fighting against injustice, of promoting love for Israel and Zion, and dedicated to building the country. Have a good evening, everyone, and uh, join us again next Sunday for our Kabbalah series on Jewish spirituality, and next Wednesday uh, when we talk about Elie Wiesel, another one of the great epic figures of the 20th century Jewry.